0: dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. I am not Tyler Burns. And don't change that dial. This is actually a real episode of Pass the Mic. I'm not here to tell you that everything's broken. My name is Bo York and I'm the producer for Pass the Mic. But joining me, ladies and gentlemen, here he is. You know him. We love him. Mr. Jamar Tisby.
1: I love that intro. You hit all of the right checkpoints of why we hear Bo's voice. (laughs)
0: It's always scary. Like I always feel bad whenever my voice is the first thing that people hear beyond the, uh, you know, the the traditional intro, because they're like, oh no, what's broken now? What got hacked? What's see, missing?
1: <laughs> you always come with, but we're working on it, and we're moving towards a solution. So, so you always end with a note of hope. It's fine.
0: All right, all right. I'll I'll take that. I'll take that. No man, we've got um, we've got some some good news actually to share today, right? We absolutely do. Yes,
1: I'm very excited. We are hitting up our last leg of the Pass the Mic Live Tour. So I know for some of you, it's very sad if we didn't come to your city or you didn't get to see us. But for D.C., it's exciting news. We will be in Washington, D.C., and we're doing something slightly different. We didn't exactly plan on it initially, (laughs) But I think it's going to be awesome. We are doing a Pass the Mic Live house party.
0: House party!
1: <laughs> so if you can remember that that 1990s movie with Kid and Play. <laughs> that's what we're talking about here. Um, but we are going to have sort of like a tiny desk type show with a very small crowd, about 30 people. Uh, tickets will go on sale soon. We'll have the link up for the Eventbrite. We would love to see you there. And it's also going to be a chance to... So so in in our other tour stops we have past the slice before the past the mic live recording we're sort of combining those and so if you get tickets to this event you get unfettered access to the past the mic team in a very small setting conversation food it's going to be great
0: yeah it's going to be amazing it's definitely unlike anything we've ever done before uh and for those by the way who have already purchased their past the slice tickets don't worry uh that that additional uh, fee is going to get re you know, you're going to get your money back on that one. It's just going to be the basic entry uh, ticket price and all that kind of good stuff. But Jamar, one thing that's unique about this, I mean, there's, there's going to be a lot that's unique about this particular one uh, is that it is going to be very exclusive. Like everything that we've done before we've tried to find venues and to some extent we tried to find venues in DC that would accommodate as large a group as possible. However, with this one, man, like we, we got a set number of tickets and then once we sell out, that's it. It's, it's it. over.
1: That's all we can fit in. It's going to be literally in a house. And so we're going to all squeeze in a living room and it's going to be fun. It's going to be memorable, but there's only a limited number of tickets. So if you're like me who sort of waits to the last minute to to make final plans, don't do that this time because they're going to be sold out.
0: Yeah, we're, I think we're a third of the way through sold out as of this moment. Oh my. And I have a feeling at, at, at the point, and that's without anybody knowing the fact that it's <laughs> uh, limited spacing. So they're going to go quick. Uh, but yes, so get your tickets today. You can learn more about that at passthemikelive.com. Click on the DC button. That'll take you right there. Of course, the DC show is going to be October 26th uh, in DC. It's going to be the house party. Unlike anything we've ever done before, if you're in that area, you will not want to miss this. So we look forward to seeing a lot of y'all there. All right, man. So we've got a uh, an episode that's uh, very near, so to speak, to our hearts Yes. as uh, two people, two guys who have uh, some history with Mississippi. Um, we're talking about a university that you in particular have a lot of history with. In fact, you have been learning history at. Yes. Uh, we're, we're talking about a lot of the controversy that's been going around at Ole Miss, the the most recent controversy, shall we say?
1: Yes. And so I'm a PhD candidate in history at the University of Mississippi, as many of you know. And- if you know anything about the university, it has a very checkered past, to say the least. When it comes to race relations, it wasn't until 1962 when James Meredith integrated the university that they ever had black students on campus. And that came with a riot by white members of society in the community, the students and beyond. It left two people dead. And so that's the kind of climate that uh, you're talking about when you're integrating the flagship university of Mississippi, which is already notorious for its racism and white supremacy. Even to this day, the con- conflict and the controversy goes on. So for a long time, the mascot was Colonel Reb, which was a throwback to Confederate rebels and sort of glorifying uh, that particular rebellion. There was... um at football games, students would wave the, the Confederate flag and play the song Dixie with pride. And then um, even today, there is a towering Confederate monument that stands at the entrance to campus. And so uh, the long, dark shadows of the past continue to cast a cold shadow on the present.
0: Yeah, you know, I I kind of meant to save this for near the end of the show, but it's it's worthwhile mentioning. Um, you know, listeners that passed the mic may recall uh, you and I got together when the Mississippi museums opened up, talking about the history of Mississippi, and also about this new podcast that I've been working on called Red Flag. And the Red Flag podcast is dedicated specifically towards telling the history of the Mississippi state flag and the Confederate iconography on it. And so we actually have this week an entire episode dedicated to Ole Miss. Um, it's, it's going specifically through the history of of the university, but more accurately, specifically through the Confederate iconography, how that's been intertwined with the university and a deep dive into James Meredith's integration process. And, um, you know, man, we've got, we got audio artifacts from JFK talking to Ross Barnett, wow. some of the most like iconic accents in the history of accents in America. <laughs> it's, uh, it's pretty amazing, but yeah, if you want, if you want to get really kind of deep into, what the history of Ole Miss has been, even that name, Ole Miss, where that comes from. Check that out. Red Flag. The episode is called Ole Miss, the Disneyland of the Confederacy.
1: Wow. Red Flag. Highly recommend it. Download it. We'll put the link in the show notes. So there's been another controversy, though, recently. Um, Do you want to intro that or should I talk about it?
0: (laughs) Yeah. So this happened, man, I was, I feel like, I think this actually happened when I was out of the country on vacation. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and it's one of those things where your phone is off or you try to keep your phone off when you're on vacation, but you still got to check it, make sure the kids are okay, all that kind of good stuff. And so I turn on my phone and I see that I I, I want to say Ed Meek and Ole Miss are trending on Twitter, at least for the local Mississippi Twitter. I don't know if it was as far reaching beyond that. Um, but of course, Ed Meek, who is, uh, somebody who has been very, uh active in the university's history. He was employed there for several years. Um he has uh donated tons of money to the university, specifically in the realm of journalism. And in fact, the School of Journalism's building held his name uh for for the longest time or since it was created. And uh with a, a large reason being the fact that he bought the building. Uh he's 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 got some cash. And uh so as as I was kind of diving into oh no what happened because whenever something's trending it's never oh yay something's trending it's always oh no what always happened oh bad news absolutely i see that he went he took to facebook and gave a very racially charged rant now he would argue that that's not necessarily the case however the rant kind of speaks for itself jamar do you want to kind of get into what he said Sure. This was
1: after a football game at the University of Mississippi. And as is typical, after a home game, the students sort of go out on the town and it's in Oxford, not the one in the UK, but Oxford, Mississippi. And in the center of Oxford is a place called the square. It's the town square. And that's where a lot of students congregate. It's not typically known as a black student space. Um, but after football, nor nor is the city of Oxford for that. (laughs) (laughs) Correct. Uh, but after football games, a lot of people go there. And so in this particular Facebook post, Ed Meek put two pictures on his post and they were both of black women students who were dressed for a night out and he appended to this post a warning for the city of Oxford in the University of Mississippi that was basically to the effect of the city and the university is going down the tubes. He specifically cited declining enrollment at the University of Mississippi. It was down, I think, 3% and declining property values in the city of Oxford. And he said, quote, enough Oxford and old Miss leaders get on top of this before it's too late. So the implication is... That message attached with those pictures were that these black women were signs and signals that the city and the university were going down the tubes. So as you can imagine, it provoked a response.
0: Yeah. So full disclosure, I I, I know Ed Meek. Um, I actually, I met him a couple of years back when we were doing uh, the, when we were working on Satchel and satchel was a uh, or is a a startup that that i created and when you're creating a startup company you need capital and in mississippi there are only a very few amount of people that can write the kind of checks that you need to really start a company and ed meek falls into that fraternity when i when i met with them it was really interesting uh, i i sat down with them he is he is an older gentleman
1: he started working at the University of Mississippi in 1964. He stayed there for 37 years. So he's well into his retirement years.
0: Yes, that's a great way to say it. And actually, as we were sitting and talking, he was very complimentary of me and he kept on telling me he apologized several times that he had double booked me, but there was this young man coming that I need to meet because from what I'm saying, it sounds like we'd have a lot in common. And about 20 to 30 minutes into our discussion, I start to figure out what he has yet to figure out, which is that he's double booked me with me, oh, uh, yeah, okay. so he thought, yeah, so it's it's kind of one of these things where um you know, he's getting on up there, let's say beyond that i was I will say that I was incredibly impressed with the fact that despite him being in a generation that is not necessarily forward thinking on technology, Ed is actually very ahead of the game in like media and journalism, uh, in new media and the way that the internet had kind of, you know, impacted the journalistic world. And so it, 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 kind of put him in kind of an odd category for me. Like there wasn't necessarily a box that being said, a lot of the folks that he connected me with kind of communicated to me that this was not necessarily somebody that it would be worth getting that check from. Uh, no worries. He didn't write me a check one way or the other. So <laughs> <laughs> point. It's,
1: not like
0: it, it's not like it was a hard thing in, from that standpoint. There is a group of individuals that when you meet them, especially in kind of the startup world, when you're trying to like, you know, raise funds, you meet a lot of guys that are kind of on up there. You can tell they haven't been told no much in their life, um, partially because they have a ton of money. And because of that kind of bubble that they're in, They tend to hold very problematic views. Hmm. So when I saw this story and everything come out, I was not at all surprised to see what had happened. I will also say I was not at all surprised to see Ed respond in a, yeah, get my name off the building. Like that makes sense to me. Hmm. He didn't necessarily go the James White route of I'm going to double down. He did kind of retreat. Now that doesn't make what he said at all forgivable. But at the same time, it's always interesting to me to see when these type of Facebook posts go viral, what the response is, like how the the person that posted that reacts.
1: Yeah, and I'll say this. uh, We have to treat everyone as image bearers of God, even when we disagree with them. So I don't know Ed Meek personally, and I'm not personally attacking him. I'm looking at what he posted, and I'm looking at the impact. And I think that's a very important point, because oftentimes when these kind of events pop off, particularly on social media, the discussion is around what was the intent of the person who posted it. And so a lot of folks who defend Mr. Meek are saying, well, he's not racist. I know him. He's a nice guy, or he didn't mean it that way. I get it. And and I am I could totally be convinced that he didn't quite know all the implications of what he was posting when he posted it. I hope he knows now. But I can also say that his intent isn't what ultimately matters here. What matters here is the impact. And if I could just share a personal story, I'm the teaching assistant for a wonderful professor in the Department of History named Shanette Garrett Scott. She teaches an African-American women's history class. And in that class, are several students who are Black women who are also students in the School of Journalism. So of all the students in all the country, this has impacted them most particularly. Not only that, one of the students who is pictured in that post was a student in our class. Wow. So we know her, and she actually didn't come to class for a couple of days because, as you can imagine, having all of this negative scrutiny on her and being put up literally as like the poster child of what's wrong with Oxford and the University of Mississippi, has an emotional, mental, and even physical toll on the people impacted. So when I respond to these kinds of events, I'm thinking of the folks who are most adversely impacted, those who have been victimized by racism, those who have been victimized by sexism, and those who are most negatively hurt by what just occurred. So, I appreciate Ed Meek may, may not have intended to offend, but he did. So we got to deal with that.
0: Oh, absolutely. All right. So, the like you said, this is something that was very um is detrimental to individuals on campus, to the school as a whole, um to people far reaching in terms of how I mean, like, you know, th- there's a lot of different angles to look at this from, right? Like the like you mentioned there's there's the university aspect, there's the students' aspect, and then there's just the state aspect as well. And there was this outcry for the School of Journalism to remove his name, which Ed also said, Yeah, please take my name off of this. And I'm sure, you know, I, I'm not saying that he said that from a standpoint of like, you know, yes, I, I should be punished or anything like that. I think it was more of like, please, please, I just want to. <laughs> like get out of the spotlight, you know Could what I mean? Could be, yeah. Not not sure that that was necessarily coming from this like, you know, very just position, but regardless, he did ask for them to to remove his name from it. And so you you made this proposition up to the uh the New York Times about, you know, with kind of the idea of like, let's, let's change the name of the school of journalism.
1: Yeah. This little newspaper called the New York times, maybe you've read it, maybe you've heard of it, but they allowed me to put some words in there and I'm just joining with a chorus of people. In fact, the day that we spoke about this in that class, I was talking about, it was another black woman, black female student who said we should change it to the Ida B. Wells school. Now Mm. this is not, Um, I I don't know if that was her original idea or if this came up in some other um, conversation or town hall, which let me make a caveat. There are some positive things, right? So it's the University of Mississippi. We've had a lot of struggles there with sort of dealing with the Confederate heritage and the heritage of slavery at the school and in the state. To the administration's credit, they responded swiftly. So, uh, the chancellor of the school made a statement. Um, the The officials, the faculty, and staff at the School of Journalism made a whole video. They were really at the forefront of this. So, and and Department of History is is always bringing the historical receipts, which I love. So, I just joined a chorus of ver- voices who were already calling for the name to be changed and suggesting suggesting Ida B. Wells. I just was able to put it into an ed in a national paper. Um, but Ida, Ida B. Wells Barnett makes sense for a myriad reasons. First of all, she's a Mississippian. She was born in 1862 in Holly Springs, Mississippi, which is just about 30 miles up the road from Oxford. Uh, she spent most of her life there. She moved up to Memphis to become a teacher and then later a journalist for which she became famous as an anti-lynching activist. And that came through painful experience. So part of the story I share in the op-ed is how she came to be interested in writing about and speaking out about lynching. It happened because one of her very close friends in Memphis was lynched. Uh, they were, mm-hmm. He was one of several co-owners of a store called People's Grocery. This is a black-owned grocery store, and it was actually successful. So at the end of the day, the reason for the lynching was economic. There was a a white store owner in the vicinity who got jealous, essentially, of their success in the competition. And through a series of lies and and misleading statements, basically got the white population turned against this grocery store. Long story, but a mob grabs these three gentlemen who weren't even involved in, uh, most directly involved in any of the uh, conflict that had happened beforehand, but they were known as owners of this grocery store and successful members of the black community. So they got taken out Dragged and shot execution style One of them happened to be Ida B. Wells' close friend And then she started writing out about this She got chased out of Memphis Had to spend most of her the rest of her life in New York and Chicago But also traveled nationwide and even internationally Talking about lynching And she's most famously known in terms of her writing for A short book called The Red Record Where she details uh, statistics about lynching Which very few people were doing at that time So uh, her reputation as an investigative journalist, as somebody who spoke truth to power, even though literally her life was threatened with violence, you know, she's she's a model for all journalists and she's a model for all truth tellers. And so how appropriate would it be to rename the school after this racist, sexist incident after not only a black person, but a black woman and call it the Ida B. Wells Barnett School of Journalism and New Media?
0: I mean, it's a great, it's a great proposal. It makes a ton of sense. And it's, it's great to hear that there's kind of some outcry from within the university from this, not just you, but um, other students specifically kind of calling this out. You know, it, it does kind of pose a question and something that, that I think the country has been wrestling with through the last couple of years in terms of, you know, what do we do with our problematic history that has been historically celebrated and then just kind of there. And now kind of in the space of like, how do we get beyond this? Like I look at something, a, an institution like Ole Miss and you know, it's, it's a college that, you know, many of my family members have graduated from. I did a summer over at Ole Miss. My wife uh, did a a graduate school at Ole Miss. Like it's, it's a university and experience that's integral to anybody that lives in Jackson, just because you have to schedule things like weddings around (laughs) Ole Miss football games, even if you don't even care about the football game, like this is just part of the culture that we're in. But at the, at the core of like what that, what how that university not just has acted in in the historical past but even markets itself today you do almost kind of have this question of like is there a way forward for some of these institutions that are so wrapped up in such a problematic history
2: this episode is brought to you in part by baker publishing group most of us don't want to spend our lives being time wasters space takers binge watchers or game players We want to be difference makers, but maybe we make changing the world a little more complex than it really is. Making a difference isn't measured by a viral post or a name on a building. It isn't determined by a following or a fan base. Want to make a difference? Focus on just one person at a time. That's the secret of the way of Jesus. In his newest book, One at a Time, Kyle Eidelman invites us to better understand the surprising habits of Jesus and the power of small things done with great love. He challenges true disciples to fully commit to the unexpected Jesus way of changing the world by loving people one at a time. Baker Bookhouse is pleased to partner with Christianity Today to offer a special discount on your copy of One at a Time. Visit bakerbookhouse.com by February 28, 2022 and use promo code ONE2022. That's O-N-E 2022 to receive 40% off with free shipping.
1: That's the question. That's the big question. I think the answer is yes, but the question is, are people willing to do what it takes? So, you know, I studied history in an academic fashion, and a big part of why I do that is I believe that telling the truth about our past is the first step to confession, and then confession leads to repentance, and repentance leads to repair. But we often try to sort of skip those steps. We don't do the truth-telling. We don't do the confession part. We want the reconciliation. Mm. We want mm. the the relationship back, but we haven't done the hard work of probing the wound. So on one level, I think what historians and journalists do just by unearthing the truth, no matter how ugly, is, is absolutely vital, right? But on another level, we're dealing with something that facts can't fix. We're dealing with ideologies and beliefs and really idols that people are clinging to. The 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 romance, the love affair even, that many people in Mississippi and beyond, you know this, uh, there are Confederate monuments nationwide. There's uh, more Confederate flags in Southeast Missouri than parts of Mississippi. We just had the president praising uh, Robert E. Lee. We sure did. It just, it's 2018, folks. So this is a national obsession with the Confederacy and it's more than just romanticizing the south I think it's also romanticizing a social structure where quote unquote everyone knows their place and of course the people holding on to this structure are at the top of it so that's what we have to deal with is people really letting go of power uh, letting go of those, Historic signs of power, whether that's a Confederate flag or a monument or a name on a building, and allowing America to be the diverse, pluralistic place that it really always has been.
0: So, that, that it all sounds very idealistic, but the reality is, is that there's just people that are not never going to change their minds. When we started working on Red Flag, we you know the goal was to try to showcase that mississippians are changing from within and while we found many mississippians who are actively working to you know make mississippi a better place for the future of, of people that live here and um you know attack kind of these problematic images these confederate uh, iconography and you know kind of a a system a pervasive system and a pervasive art of white supremacy that has permeated throughout our our state to the point where it's become Uh, almost like, you know, we're almost known for it here. So from that standpoint, like there are lots of people in here that are working for, for a better Mississippi. And there are some people that have changed. Uh, the Huffington Post, I believe it might've been the Atlantic, uh, just recently did a whole, uh, photo journalistic article about, you know, people in Mississippi, racist Mississippians who are, you know, have been working through that and have, have kind of, you know, uh, through, through learning their history, uncovered the, the reality of this kind of nerfed concept of the confederacy and, and the nerfed concept of slavery and the nerfed concept of uh, things as recent as you know 30 years ago like they're becoming more awoken to it uh, to the realities of of the state and the country that they live in today but there's still just some people that are not going to change man like like you talked about the fact that we're talking like almost kind of these sacred cows right like there's there's a there's a sacredness there's an idolatry that exists not even just the Confederate iconography, but the systems that surround it. So the institutions that would say that, oh, you know, this very wealthy person made this very problematic statement that is clearly racially charged, regardless about what anybody else says, but it's okay because, you know, he's a sweet old man. Like part of the same system that glorifies that Confederate iconography is tied to that same mentality that's like, you know like oh you know it's it's fine he's not racist let's just move along and and pretend like nothing happened
1: right yeah I
0: mean there's a clear line there is there not
1: you know I don't think it's as the explanation is is very complicated I think there is a love of money and a love of power that prevents people from seeing the truth like I really think people are blind. To this, and you're right. There are some people who won't change, and as religious people, we're we're sort of not supposed to say that. But there there are hard hearted people. Um, there's a love of money that goes along with even even if you don't have money, it's fear of not getting it right. So, from a university standpoint, it would be very controversial to change the name, especially to then honor a black woman because part of what you're thinking about is what's going to happen to the contributions to the university. Because many of the biggest contributors are the people who want to keep the Confederate memory and myth alive. They're most devoted to it. And so there can be a, a love of money, even when you don't have it, but you fear that you're going to lose it and your institution or your, your job standing will suffer. Uh, there's also a love of money that, that shows itself in uh not being willing to pay taxes as someone in the white house has recently been revealed has made hundreds of millions and paid almost nothing in federal income tax uh and changing those systems that would result in a more equitable distribution of income but there's also a love of power where you know the system is rigged man i don't know how else to say it <laughs> like you can you can be in the numerical minority but because you control the courts, because you control the Senate or the House or both, because you control the governor's office, whatever it might be, because you can change the map for voting districts, you can stay in power. And once you get there or get close, you don't want to give it up. So those are the kinds of changes that, that, that are necessary to see a more inclusive and just society, not just Mississippi, but nationwide. And people aren't willing to give that up. And that's an age-old story. The paradox is this. Most of the folks who are holding on to these memories of America, when America was great, whatever date and time that was, they don't see the need for systemic and institutional change. They don't see themselves as racist because, oh, I know Black people. We're friends. We laugh together. I've got selfies with Black people whatever it might be, all the while not understanding how the policies and the systems and the people they promote are actually hurting the folks they claim to have friendships with. The irony is this, in order for them to change their minds about the systemic and institutional factors, they do have to have personal relationships with people who come from different backgrounds, because that's the only way it starts to become real to them is when it is someone they respect, someone they love, someone they trust, saying, hey, these things are happening to me. It's not just the liberal media or whomever. This is reality that they begin to, to, to become enlightened and to change. Uh, but a lot of times, like you're saying, these are folks who are not used to being told no. They're in a very insular, social and professional bubble. So the likelihood of those kinds of authentic, meaningful relationships developing is very, very slim.
0: So I got to ask you, as a student at Ole Miss, as somebody who chose to study at the <laughs> University of Mississippi, chose yes. <laughs> <laughs> you had options. You had options. I sure did. Tons of options. Yeah, it's funny. An, an event like this happens. A name that's so tied with the university that that's literally on one of the buildings there. Post something like this, uh, you know, which is dismissive and offensive, and. Clearly racially charged. Why would any African American look at Ole Miss, Ole Miss, quote unquote, Ole Miss, as an option?
1: That's a great question. One <laughs> I ask myself frequently and get frequently. I think, in a funny way, there's no better place to study race and religion and American history than a place like the University of Mississippi. It's almost precisely because it has so many issues, past and present, that we're in this very rich place uh, for not only academic study but also um, activism in the present. A student asked me about that very same thing. She 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 actually served as an ambassador for the university. This is a black female student, and. Uh, this situation with Ed Meek's facebook post happened and she's she she mentioned in class like i don't see how i can lead another tour and especially tell any person of color that they should come here like what do i say is what was her, what her question was and i was like i get that i completely get that because most of my life i've been in part i've been part of predominantly white churches schools institutions and in some way shape or form i've had to advocate At various times, or at least make a defense of why I was there, uh, which was not affirming everything that the institution did, but saying why it was a place that Black people should consider. So I told her that even though the University of Mississippi, the state of Mississippi, has all of these racial issues and problems that are glaringly apparent within and beyond the state, the reason you should come here is because this is a school of activism it's a place where you can get an education in what it means to fight for justice and change that the university of mississippi is in many ways shackled to the past because of the decisions of a small group of people but at the same time there's a vigorous group of people who are fighting for progress and you can be part of that change um I also say that being in the South and being in a place like Mississippi, no one ever lets you forget the problems that the state or the university has when it comes to race. That means there's somebody always working on it. Whereas I grew up in the Midwest, in the Chicagoland area, and there was this sense that we were post-racial even before that became a term. There was a sense that because we saw visual diversity, that we were beyond the problems of race. And we could always look to a place like Mississippi as, quote, the real racist, when the reality is, yeah, there were black and brown and white people and all everything besides, but we were still very segregated in terms of schools, in terms of neighborhoods. And when we got together, when we saw other people, it would be in places like the mall or of sporting events game and it would delude you into thinking that you had made more progress than you actually did. And it was almost a breath of fresh air to come down south and bump into people who realize that there's still a problem and we still need to be fighting racism today. So those are the couple of, couple of reasons why I say as a black graduate student at the University of Mississippi, um, there can be advantages to being here
0: there's work to be done in Oxford and there's work to be done in Mississippi. I mean, the reality is, you know, you, if, if you're, I'm, I'm down in Jackson. If I drive up to Oxford, I got to pa- pass by the Ross Barnett reservoir. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know what, actually, Jamar, if, if you'll allow me, I can, at the end of this episode, I'll include a little, uh, a clip from red flag that included, uh, Ross Barnett's, uh, election jingle. Have you ever heard it? Uh-uh. <laughs> oh no, but I can Man, just imagine. It is. It's glory. And like, it's uh, for segregation, 100%. No. He's, and like the funny thing is it's so catchy. I found myself walking <laughs> down the like, street like singing one day, not realizing <laughs> what I was doing. <laughs> That's how they get you. It's with the and, Anyway, the point is that like our history and it's not like our deep history. Isn't it? It's like James Meredith goes to my church. I see him at Kroger. You know what I mean? Still alive.
1: Like, living history. Exactly. Yes. It ain't that long ago, folks. It ain't that long ago. And look, look, we're dealing with voter suppression, like like for real, legit 2018 voter suppression. Absolutely. It's unbelievable how how much the past echoes in the present. Um and man I'm fired up. Like I've got these talks to give in the next couple of weeks. One is history as activism, one is a, a sermon I'm preaching at a chapel. And it's really hard because on one hand I want to approach it as, you know, this well-prepared, scholarly, intellectual kind of endeavor, but at the same time I'm fired up because We got injustices happening all around us. We've got the movement for black lives. We got the the Me Too movement. We've got issues of immigration where all of these, these, these situations are calling for reform and people are fighting for reform. And I just can't bear to see any American citizen, much less any Christian, just kind of hanging back in their comfort zone. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, I, I it, it, It's just a moment to me that calls for action. And that doesn't mean everyone's marching in the street or holding a picket sign. I'm not saying don't, maybe, go do it. You never know. Mm-hmm. But it does mean that I think we're called to public justice. And and that word public is important, right? Because a lot of people basically Tell themselves, and I tell myself, look, if I'm a nice person, I say please and thank you. I try not to steal or curse. Then I'm doing my part, right? But it's so much bigger than that. How are you loving and caring for your neighbor? And there's um, a section in in Howard Thurman's book, Jesus and the Disinherited, that says neighbor is a quantitative or a qualitative aspect. It doesn't depend depend on proximity right? So that means that your neighbor is not just the people in your physical proximity, although they are your neighbor. What about beyond that? And especially for people who are marginalized and oppressed. In in America, that's women, that's Black people, that's other racial and ethnic minorities, that's immigrants, that's children, um, so many different groups that, that, that are crying out in need. And I'm just burdened by the call for change. And And on a positive aspect, the opportunity to get involved, the opportunity has never been broader because you can get involved online, in person, through civics and government, uh, through churches, all kinds of ways. But the only wrong move to make is no move at all. We got to get going. That's
0: good, man. That's good. Well, one way that you can get involved, at least with this podcast anyway, is to support it. You head over to patreon.com slash pass the mic and be a supporter of this podcast and make sure that you get an episode every single week. We really appreciate everybody who's uh, been helping to make that happen. Also, DC, we are coming your way. Don't forget, it is going to be October the twenty sixth in DC. The House Party, the Past the Mike House party. House Party. And uh, man, you talk about activism and kind of figuring out what to do. Like, come, come, work, work with us together. Like, let's let's have some talks. The the conversations that are going to happen. I, I think I can go ahead and predict this. The conversations that are going to happen at the House Party. Are going to be unlike anything else because a lot of times wow. when we do live shows, what ends up happening is, you know, the the show happens, it's a blast, uh, and then afterwards, everybody kind of lines up. You know, everybody's trying to get get a piece of uh, Jamar and Tyler, Jamar and Tyler. I was actually uh, Jamar. I was telling somebody about this recently um, when we were starting out and kind of seeing some of the uh, pseudo celebrity Christians at different events we would show up at. For example, <laughs> uh, the uh, I think TGC in particular, we did an event there, and John Piper showed up. But with his like his protective crew, so like he had all of these people following him that were trying to talk to him, and then he had all of these gu- kind of guards around him. And I thought, man, that's crazy. Like, why would you do that? That makes no sense. But then we started doing these events, and like you know, when it's like we got to leave in like ten minutes, and there's twenty people lined up to see Jamar. And, like all of a sudden, now I got to be that bad guy. It's like, nope, sorry, we got to right, put it. we got to right, hide him away right. so that we can get, we can get out of here before we get charged. Oh, the bouncer. <laughs> no, man, that's all. That's all. No, none other than Aaron James who. uh yeah. More on Aaron James later, but anyway, so man, yes. Uh, come out, join us DC. It's going to be amazing. You get a chance to really have some kind of these personal real conversations. It's going to be much more casual than we've done before, but honestly, there's a whole lot more value in that. So we're really looking forward to connecting with many of you in DC. Um, man, anything else that we need to let folks know before we, uh, before we sign out, always remember to rate, subscribe and review on iTunes. Absolutely. So do that. Uh, and until next time, we'll see you soon on the next. Pass the mic. And now a sneak peek at this week's episode of the Red Flag Podcast, available at redflagpod.com. Back in 1960, Mississippi elected Ross Barnett governor, based largely on his staunch opposition to integration. Roll
2: with Ross, roll with Ross, he's boss for segregation percent
0: he's a yeah that was his real campaign song he even went on to explain his commitment to segregation to a BBC reporter on the floor of the Democratic National Convention
2: would you say in a sentence to British viewers why you oppose this platform of the democratic party which seeks to give negro americans their full rights under the constitution in the first place it is contrary to the constitutional provisions of our constitution uh, if this uh, now then is... there's no provision in the constitution anywhere giving the federal government a right to deal in local affairs it's just not there but the federal government does have the the constitution does guarantee to all american equal rights under the law doesn't it Equal rights? That's true. That's true. But the states are capable of giving those equal rights.
0: So by 1962, it's really no surprise that Barnett was leading the charge against integration.
1: Uh, the governor, Governor Ross Barnett at the time, leads a, a, basically a rally at a University of Mississippi football game. This was back when the university still played a lot of its games in Jackson, but he was down there in Jackson. And